Hi there, everybody. Welcome to another episode of the Cloud-Based Mayhem. Uh, happy to have you here. I've got a great show for you. Uh, before we get started, just briefly wanted to thank everybody yet again for all your generous donations. This is a listener-supported podcast. We don't have any sponsors. Thank you so much. I've been doing a bit of film tour festivals the last few days uh, here in Ketchum and up in Montana uh, with North of Known. If you want to see a few kind of special clips from North of Known, go to our Patreon page. We've got a new way to support the show where you can kind of set it and forget it. There's all kinds of rewards uh, at various levels and that you can put a cap on it. It's not like if I put out a ton of shows, you got to pay for every one. But as always, all we ask for is a buck a show and Patreon is a really cool way rather than using PayPal every once in a while to to do that. So go to patreon.com forward slash cloud-based mayhem, or you can find the links on the uh, on the website, cloudbasedmayhem.com to that Patreon page. And on there, you can see about three minutes of really cool footage that very, very few people have seen. In fact, some of that's not even in the movie. Uh, you can go there and check it out and go, whoa, those dudes are nuts. Tom Paine, uh, spent some time with Tom Paine, a British pilot, started uh, flying back in the 90s, competed in the X-Alps in 2009, was on the British team, uh, was flown in a ton of PWCs. Uh, one of the guys that Bruce and I, when we first started flying a lot in the Alps, one of the guys we would look at all the time for inspiration for big, huge triangles, especially around Annecy. He created XC Planner, a tool I'm sure many of you use, and if you don't, you should be using uh, for planning your day and planning triangles and big flights. It shows FAIs and flat triangles, and it's just an amazingly useful tool. In fact, when he created that, that was what got him the job at Google. But yeah, in this episode, we talk about SIV. We talk about a really harrowing accident that he just had and walked away from. Uh, so we get into reserves and probabilities and uh, safety and coming out of the open class when the open class was banned in 2011, what that meant for him. Uh, he's like me, kind of a small guy and what it means for the ladies, of course. Uh, that was a huge bummer for him, but uh, fi his, his, his finding his passion in flying in other avenues. We also talk about single surface wings. He's having a lot of fun with the new Niviac uh, P Tandem, uh, single surface tandem that weighs like 3.1 kg or something totally ridiculous. So I think you're going to enjoy this talk. I know you're going to enjoy this talk. Without further ado, please enjoy my conversation with Tom Payne. Tom, uh, super excited to have you on the show. You uh, you were very instrumental in in helping my team out last year, well, a couple years ago now for the uh, 2015 X Alps, and you've been a real uh, kind of mentor and hero to me. I, I used to when I first started flying in the Alps. Um, you first kind of kind of opened that bread basket a few years ago with my supporter Bruce. Uh, your flights on X contests were a real driver of oh my god, look what you can do! Uh, you know your your huge triangles around uh, Annecy. So I, I'm I'm excited to talk to you. Thanks thanks for your time. And uh, I understand you just had a, a pretty nice weekend out touring and around Zurich. Yeah, that's right. Um, yeah, day ski touring and a day paragliding in Engelberg. Uh, taking friends on the tandem in glorious conditions. And I understand you were, let's get right into these sequel surface wings. I understand you were, you were out on, on uh, Niviac's new P tandem. That's like three point something kgs. How, how, how do you find that wing? It's awesome. 
Yeah, I bought it. I've gone half and half with a friend, and we only got it about a month ago. But it just opens up so many possibilities. Yeah, three point three for the wing, uh, two hundred grams for two F light harnesses, a pair of soft spreaders in there, and you're still under, you know, three point six kilos. It fits in a small rucksack, and as a result, we're just taking it everywhere. Basically, uh, we went out a couple of weekends ago, took it touring. Snow cover was pretty thin, so we skinned up the tops, skied down while there's still snow. When the snow ran out, jumped on the uh, tandem and flew down. Unbelievable! I mean, that it's incredible to think that that was quite a bit lighter than my X Alps kit. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> in 2015, you know, I flew, flew the Ice Peak 7 uh, you know, at the last minute. I, I made a change to the 7 because I, I uh, wanted a little bit more performance, which was just a standard. You know, It wasn't a lightweight wing, but that's amazing that a tandem can be so light. Have you, have you had much experience with the solo gliders as well? Have you done any XC flying? Yeah, I've um, had the Ozone XX Lite, the 14 square meter version, for two or three years now and had just loads of adventures on it. I mean, this thing is... With the harness, comes down to 1.2 kilograms of mm. all you need to fly. Um, so I've done everything from running up the local mountain, flying with it, with soaring, taking it to the dunes in Portugal. Uh, I've thermaled it a few times. Uh, it's just an amazing wing. It's a bit special, though. Yeah, and, and, and would you use it to fly like proper XC or no? Is that not no, really? No, to be honest. Okay. So the, the original XX Lite is very light, but it's very slow. And okay. um, although the normal glide is okay-ish, I don't know, sort of six-ish, seven-ish, something like that, as soon as it gets turbulent, uh, it, it just, I wouldn't say literally falls out the sky, but you get a really poor glide. Mm. Um, and it's a very high workload. It's always moving around. It's much scarier to fly than a, initially than a, even a sort of competition two-liner. Mm. The thing's just moving all the time and feels really nervous. And mm. you get used to it, but it's still, you know, it's not a relaxing wing to fly in. Not something you go on an eight-hour cross the Alps adventure. No, no. <laughs> okay, gotcha. I've flown the the Skin P just a little bit, and uh, it, a couple of the days were 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 pretty rowdy. And I would I would uh, concur with your thoughts there. I thought, wow, this is really active. <laughs> it yeah. never did anything. It, you know, nothing ever went bad. But it, I just thought, oh, it just just seems so handkerchiefy. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I think the second generation, the Skin and the UFO are much better and much more complete wings than the original XX Lite, even though they're a bit heavier. Right, right. Yeah, pretty pretty phenomenal wings. Uh, let's let's get people just completely wrapped into this <laughs> into this uh, into this talk. You just had a really wild incident, a little acro incident. Can you can you uh, expand on that? Yeah, I uh, should have died basically. Wow, <laughs> very lucky person. I mean, a complete pilot error on my part, um, taking out the acro wing for the first time in a year and went straight into trying some helis, messed up an exit. So I shouldn't, I didn't let it fly, held it installed and had the classic pilot induced cascade with, you know, riser twists and falling past wing and this sort of thing. Thought, no worries. So once you see the wing down and twisted, right, time for reserve, uh, chuck the reserve and boop, straight into the main wing. Thought, oh, no worries. I've got my acro on this. I've got a second reserve. So I fumbled that out now. It's sort of spinning down towards the ground. Basically dropped it. And that <laughs> straight into the wing as well. And that's aye, it. Aye. So um, Both of them were wrapped, just all wrapped up them, into what you yeah, had. Yeah, they got about halfway up the lines. The wing was still fully inflated, but we're now with four riser twists. And the um, both reserves just sort of stuck against the, the, the lines uh, just by the, the sort of forward motion of the wing. 
So not not deployed at all. They weren't no, you know they no. weren't doing a little bit of hanging around or getting some air. Or they're they're just <laughs> nothing. Just unrolled yeah. into your into your wing, basically. Yeah, yeah. You know, maybe yeah. a couple of square meters from each of them, um, just slowing down the rotation a bit. And um, you know, with four twists and uh, in the risers, the brakes were completely locked, and I was pretty much out of options. So I just got to watch the uh, the world get closer. And uh, wait for everything to go black. <laughs> oh, was there were there any thoughts of you know when it was coming down? Where you know you're you're a really serious uh, pilot and have had a ton of experience. Where there you know were you thinking like God, can I pull it back in and re you know? Did you have that kind of time or uh, was it just yeah? This is I'm screwed. I mean, I, I tried what I could. I tried uh, tugging at the lines to try and get the reserves out. That was obviously not going to happen. Uh, the brake, the brakes were completely locked. The twists was enough, enough of them that I couldn't reach above uh, above them to get the brake lines directly. Um, so I, I ran out of options. That's how I felt. Uh, okay, keep going. <laughs> but that's it. I thought I'm not ready to go yet. Still want to see my friends and family. And um, uh, up comes the ground, and it's just amazing. I expect to be, you know, never walk again. And I, uh, I have this spiral where I'm spiraling down. I hit, uh, I'm super lucky. I hit a gently uh, sloping, uh, grassy bit in the landing field going down slope and pretty much not quite parallel to the slope, but a nice gentle an angle. Uh, my harness takes a lot of the impact, uh, good back protector in there and that's it. And Walked away. I, yeah. I stood up obviously a little bit in shock, but you know, a slight sprain on the left shin and, um, I don't know, maybe a bit of ache on the right shoulder, but nothing else. I just cannot believe it. My friends would see me, um, pile in, come running over and I said I was, you know, stood up within a couple of seconds of, of hitting, made a big lung sound, but Whoa. I'm sure yeah. part, part of that's your fitness and like me being a little small wombat. <laughs> no, it was bad. pure luck. It was pure luck, mate. Wow. So... Just, the, the reason I knew about this accident is you you wrote uh, Russ and I after our talk where I you know he he admittedly made the mistake of saying that you know uh, carrying two reserves doubles your chances and, yeah. and you being a uh, you know a numbers guy and work for Google and you you study this kind of stuff you pointed out very rightly that that is not the case can you describe why it isn't why we don't yeah. double our chances. Yeah, um, it's basically because you only have to use your second one if your first one doesn't work. So if your first one works reliably, say it works 95% of the time, then only 5% of the time will you actually need that second reserve. So it increases your – and if that one also works 95%, then it increases your chances overall from about 95 to 99.5% chance. Mm. I Does that make sense? It's um, Of course. Yeah, but you pointed uh, out that the first time uh, you're not going to get ninety five percent. Typically, that's not what people. That's, it, that's not how it works out. Yeah. So bizarrely, the less reliable your reserve systems, the better it is to have more of them. But mm. if you've got, it's more important to make sure your first reserve works than it is to carry a second reserve. Just on the maths of the probabilities. Okay. And of course, and if you're in a situation like I was in, where I mean, helicopters are awful. If you think about it, because you've got no, if you've got the glider spinning and you've got very low airspeed and stuff's twisting around. So it's a good situation to get into a mess. 
And this exactly the same way that your first reserve can fail by going into the wing. If you're in that, still in that situation, there's a good chance the second reserve will do just the same. I think this is why the acro kids have now had their base uh, reserve system, so they can just completely disconnect from the wing. But they also have to have uh, a normal PDA or square parachute for when they're, they all are a bit tangled up in the wing and the base system uh, can't work. So what, you know, you, you bounced, you walked away. Mm-hmm. What, what will you change now, if anything? It was a stupid overconfidence error on my part. Uh, although I'd done an FSIV course recently, it wasn't on this particular wing, and I progressed too quickly, and I was very lucky to escape. So what will change, I want to go back and you know, do helicopters on this wing, but I'm going to go out and do a shed load of full stalls first, uh, take on an SIV course, uh, and really make sure I cover the basics, uh, the basic skills before progressing. So I progress, I, I progress too fast. And what would you change anything about your gear in other disciplines? You know, XE. Do you do you carry two reserves? Um, I have I have a couple of harnesses. I've got a lightweight pod which I use day to day with a single reserve, and I've got a competition pod with two reserves. Bizarrely, I've thrown both of those actually. <laughs> mm. Yeah, at and, the British Open in San Andre last uh, last year, I was racing my Enzo two along a mountain called the Coupe. And uh, had a big collapse, only about 100 meters above the deck, and just thought, I do not have time to fix this. So I threw the reserve immediately. That one worked. And uh, then I looked to where I was going to land. It was a fairly steep, uh, steep cliff. And I thought, maybe I'll throw the second one as well. So I chucked the second one as well, which also worked. And I came down very gently, which was very nice. And you were you were just 100 meters off the deck when you flew the first yeah. through the fr- Wow, that's fast. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so it was pretty quick. And, and the and the landing was was benign. Yeah, it was. Uh, it came down a steep slope with trees. Okay. Um, so and and with all the sail of two reserves and the main wing uh, above me, there was a lot of stuff slowing me down. So I slowed down over about I don't know five or six meters, and uh, could unclip from the harness and step onto the ground. What would you credit your recognition of that? blow up an immediate throw to uh, you, if you've listened to the show a little bit um you probably yeah. heard about me talk about the the accidents we had at nationals last year in the mm-hmm. sierras um, we had two guys uh, pretty much identical very very bad injuries and they were both in in a sense the different days but in a sense similar in that you know i you, you can always look at these things with 2020 hindsight, but we, we believe the consensus is, is they both would have been fine had they thrown and they, oh. but because, because it's competition, maybe that's one maybe thing that was going through their head. The other thing is just, you know, what we do, we, we can, we can get mm-hmm. this. We've, we've been here before we can recover this. Anyway, they tried to recover it too long, pounded, didn't throw yeah. you, you made a decision there uh, that a lot of people don't make. You know, they they try to recover it, and you you just said, "Nah, I don't have this," uh, and you threw. Do you, what do you credit that to? Uh, bizarrely, it was a collapse earlier in the flight. Um, I'd had a big collapse and maybe a small cravat, and I'd noticed that it had taken a bit of time to to get out, and so it was very clear when I had this really big one low down that there was no way I had the height to recover it in the time. Uh, mm. It might have been possible to do so, but 
they're ultimately the this is why we carry the safety gear this is why we've got it it's to make sure we walk away from these things so it's what the reserve is for and uh, i can cope with having a poor poor result in a task mm, smart yeah. smart i like it back to your the incident with the heli um i, I was mm. doing a bunch of training last year with cody matank down in the desert and we were training over the dirt you know towing up over the dirt so we were you know very aware of that risk and he he really stuck into my head uh, which something that I I had never heard before or practiced, which was to really make sure you're in a deep slide, deep stall or a tail slide before you throw. So he has this whole thing where, you know how we constantly, every time we flight, we do that reach for the reserve handle just mm -hmm. to muscle memory. Well, his yep. is, you know, grabbing that other toggle, you know, so both toggles are in one hand. You just, get it down to your belly button safely in a, you know, a tail slide is much easier to obviously maintain than a, than a deep mm -hmm. stall before you throw to, to lessen the chance of throwing the reserve into your wing. Now, obviously mm -hmm. when you're, when you're wrapped up as you were in a, in a heli, that becomes really hard because your brakes are locked, but you know, in, but it, in retrospect, could you, could you have reached up at stalled your wing I'm assuming you were kind of in an auto rotate or something situation, you know, just wildly out of control. But are there other means, or especially in acro where you maybe have some more time? Or have you thought through any of that? I'm mean, just curious because I know you're really analytical. Yes, very much so. I mean, I very much could have prevented the situation occurring uh, by giving correct inputs. Sure. Uh, I'm really sure I know exactly what happened. I enter a helicopter. It's the second helicopter of this flight. It starts to go off axis. I decide to exit the helicopter by putting hands up, uh, where I really I should have done a stall exit, error number one. The wing dives forward. I'm looking at the wing, and these acro wings, of course, trimmed to stay inflated when you're doing maneuvers like the helicopter. So I see the wing fully inflated. Um, so I put my hands back down again, thinking to damp the dive from the stall, but really the wing is not properly flying. And I'm now holding it basically in a deep stall position, but with the thing twisting and starting to thrash around. Mm. And very so I should have A done a stall exit, which is a much safer exit from a helicopter, uh, and rebuild from that. Uh, and B, I could have acted much quicker to stop the situation developing. Okay. Okay. Tom, you you have uh, been at this game a long time and uh, catch us up with, give us the, the short version of your history and, and what brought you to where you are. And I'd love to hear also uh, what brought you to the X Alps in, mm. in 2009. Yeah. So I started flying in 95, 96, did my uh, club pilot to Northern paragliding in the Yorkshire Dales in the UK. Uh, flew in the UK, got my pilot rating a couple of years after that. It was keen, but UK weather isn't great. And it was only really when I moved to the Alps in 2003 that I really got to do a lot, a lot of flying and really start building the mountain flying career. Give me some, uh, give me an age here. Uh, in my age, I was being 28 okay. at the time. Okay. And uh, and there, 2003, of course, was the first year of the X Alps. I was in Chamonix that summer, eagerly watching it. Uh, I mean, the, the systems were pretty basic there. I remember there was only. 15 people or so in the race, the live tracking up, done by SMS and updated maybe once a minute or, and or these things slowly crawled across the, uh, <laughs> across the Google earth. 
And I mean, it was very interesting talking to people who competed in that race. You know, that first time they were taking a uh, heading out with um, sleeping bags in the rucksacks and some people have full weight equipment because they thought the advantage of um, performance in the air would be greater than um, the cost in carrying that. The, the race has changed massively since, but it was amazing to see. And of course, they came through Chamonix. So I got so that. Um, I got really into the fantastic cross-country flying in the Annecy region. I was living in Chambry and then Geneva and I had a very good local club we were very, uh, with some very good pilots who... Uh, showed me how to fly cross country, and from that, from um, the cross country, I then got into the competition scene. Uh, initially, friendly competitions, the Ozone Sharper Open, went for a few years. Uh, then the British Opens, and eventually PwC. And then around 2011, I was really starting to get good. I was starting to get good results in these high-level competitions. The Open Class Ban came in. That was a huge, huge setback for me. Um, I spent some years fighting that trying to get get open class back and um have explain a little yeah. bit uh stick on that for a bit explain a little bit why that was such a blow as I, I think a lot of listeners don't understand why that would be yeah so it was such a blow because it just decimated the competition scene mm. in so many ways there was it was so exciting to uh, to watch all the the new glider developments uh all of the heroes would turn up for the um, the big competitions. It was incredibly inspiring to fly along uh, aside these people and see these things happening. I was at one of the last open class PWCs in Lienz in Austria, and there were rumours that Jin had turned up with a 1.5 liner. Uh, it was... <laughs> awesome! <laughs> and yeah, you're just you're just aware of all this technology and development happening around you. And of course, all this filters down to recreational wings. You know, you get ENAs with shark nose profiles and rigid bits in the leading edge and all sorts now. And because all the um, the test pilots are there with their new prototypes, you've got these very, very top level pilots from all different manufacturers. It's really exciting. Mm. Mm. And, you know, in the stroke of a pen, CIVL removed all that and we're back to END and the test pilots don't turn up anymore. You only they can fly certified wings. It's only economical to certify the medium size typically. So for two years, there was no wing for me to fly. I could be competitive with. Mm. If you wanted to win, you had the only wing to be on was um, actually the Enzo and then later Ice Peak Six. Um, and you can't compete against an Enzo if all you've got is a small Mantra Four and a four classic END. Sure. Yeah. So. Both the the character of the competitions changed, and they're just you know, at that level, small differences in glider performance really matter. And there's just no point turning up if you can't get a competitive wing. Mm. And so, where does it sit with you now with the CCC class? Uh, it's it, it's uh, it's over really. I mean, the new CCC class is really um, END for extra small people, and then open class more or less for for everyone sure. else. Yeah. So it's kind of removed us little guys from the, from yeah. the scene, hasn't it? Well, you're full of muscle, mate. I'm <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. What did Ed call me? Big Guns McClurg or something. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. You carry, carry that weight around the X-Alps course as well. <laughs> but you're still, you're still competing. Very rarely. I mean, I'll do a couple of uh, competitions this year. I'm going along to the Navata Open in Macedonia. 
well, I'll give some talks on competition flying. You know, when I was doing a lot, I, uh, I recorded and, and uh, wrote articles on a lot of techniques and stuff I learned. And I'll be sharing some of that. Mm. And I'll probably go to one of the British Opens as well. But now competing for fun to see my friends, not, not gunning for first place. I was going to say, you know, one of the notes I made before talking to you is, and I was going to say, you know, was it, was the X-Alps in 2009 kind of the peak of your career? And it doesn't sound like that at all. It sounds like it was more, it was more mm. the peak was happening until the open class got banned. Exactly. It was 2010. That year I was getting podium finishes in cap twos. I was, I was starting to get top 10 finishes in individual PWCs. I was winning, I ran my first international competition, uh, several task wins and I flew a lot that year. I mean, I, I was on the Ozone R10. I think I did 30 tasks that year. Wow. And yeah. it's really something that responds well to practice. And I was getting a lot of practice. And tell me a little bit about, because I know now you're, you work for Google and I'd love to hear that story of how you got that <laughs> job because that ties into paragliding, which I, I really like. Yeah. And it's a, it's a tool that most all of us use now. Uh, thank you for that. And we'll talk about XC Planner. Um, but back then, how, what was your work play? How, how was that all meshing? Because I think one of the, one of the questions we get a lot is, you know, how do I, how do I fly a lot? and live yeah. <laughs> a live in the right place mm. so moving to the alps makes a massive difference when it's on your doorstep you can go after work you can go every weekend plus it's the infrastructure is is excellent the forecast weather forecasts are very good there's lots of different sheltered places to go on the less good days so just living close to reliable flying is probably number one mm. i took uh, a, a job at 80 percent time Okay. So every, every weekend was a three-day weekend. Actually, it was flexible, so I could just go on the good days. Um, and that made a massive difference. Be in the right place. Yeah, yeah. And be keen. I mean, one of the uh, great things at this time, and I was, this is also when I was cracking out the big uh, triangles uh, in the Alps, is because I wanted to do well in competitions, I would go out on the less good days, you know, when days you're not going to break your first or best, and still go flying. And I see it as training for competitions. Of course, if the competitions that trains you uh, speed in terms of average speed around a course, which you need to have if you want to do the really big flights. So there's very much a virtuous circle there. Mm. And it's and it's not being keen, going out as often as you can. And bizarrely, I find it's often on the the bad weather days or the ones that don't look great that you have some of the most memorable experiences. Mm. You end up flying over cloud or working your way through sort of the shadow of shadowy valleys, but finding a way through or connecting different types of lift and, and wave lift and dynamic and all sorts. It's when it gets really interesting. Yeah. So it sounds like take advantage of, uh, of every moment. Yeah, exactly. Be keen, be hungry uh, and the rest will follow. And so, um, Let's rewind the clock. 2009, mm -hmm. X-Alps. Uh, I know that, that this is something you watch with a great amount of passion. Um, and uh, But your, your experience was a rough go. Yeah, it was a number of factors uh, conspired there. Um, or conspired, I should say. Um, but basically, we had pretty brutal weather conditions. It was, for several days, just strong southwesterly winds. Um, some people flew, um, but didn't get very far. 
uh, I just hiked. My last four days was just hiking along tarmac roads. It was Kriegel's first year. He was way ahead. Um, and he, um, Alex Hoffer, who'd won it twice previously, uh, struggled to get to Monaco within the two-day time limit of Kriegel's arrival. And for the rest of us, still stuck in the middle of the Alps, no chance of making Monaco, uh, no real opportunity for flying and certainly not any safe flying. Uh, it was just brutal. <laughs> and you uh, talked about that you, you you didn't train right or something. Yeah, I did a lot of running, which is not what you need. I was very fast uh, on the ground. Uh, I was fit. Um, but as I'd focused on running, typically doing, you know, three or four 20, 30K runs um, a week, uh, getting quite quick. I was doing I think, 16 kilometers an, an hour average speeds, which is reasonable. But I didn't do the long hikes that you need to get all the, the connective tissue uh, in your legs strong. Mm. And that's what actually really got me in the race as well. I got uh, arthritis, basically inflammation in my ankle. I can't remember what happened to my knees, but I remember them hurting a lot, a lot, a lot. The race doctor, of course, is around. He gave me a nice cortisone injection, which meant I could continue uh, continue racing. And continue thrashing your body. Yeah. 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 I've been really surprised with, uh, you know, I've, I've learned a lot because I'm, I've never been a runner. I have very bold legs, as you probably remember, mm -hmm. and, 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 and terrible joints from years and years of ski racing. But um, working with Ben, it's been really interesting to understand. He's done a lot of these kind of like death races and ultra-thons, and that's not what the X-Alps is. I think a lot of people do think that, those are the guys that that can really excel, but that's that's not the case. It's really it's it's the it's the pack, even though it's not that heavy. But you know, you've got your yeah. pack weight, you've got a ton of vertical, and then, like you said, it's it's taking care of the connective tissues and yeah. and uh, yeah, it's it's more it's it's more climbing. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And so I mean, even take a decent uh, ultra marathon. So, for example, the longest I did was one called the CCC in Chamonix, which was 100 kilometers, 6,000 meters of ascent, and you do it in, I did it in 20 hours. Mm. I mean, wow. that's, that's not even one day of the X-Alps. The X-Alps last 10 to 12 days, typically. Yeah. And racing at a sustainable pace is one of the very key things that you have to do if you're going to survive the race. Right. Yeah. And I think that's the key is that it's that sustainable pace, you know, that yeah. the, a lot of the guys that go out, we saw it last time, didn't we? The guys that ran early a lot, they, they all folded, you know, they yeah. it just that that's not very sustainable <laughs> to yeah. do that. Toma can do it, but yeah. 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 XC planner. Well, I want to talk about XC planner. I want to talk about X contest as well. Mm. Uh, and I don't know if you were involved with, with X contest, but um, when, before before talking to you, I reached out to Bruce, who has been following you and following your triangles, and you know he's an ex contest addict, and I think he won a uh, chocolate bar at least two or three years in a row, just chasing those hundred k flights. That was his big thing. He just loved that, and <laughs> and he wanted to get your thoughts on you know is is ex contest obviously it's an amazing resource, um, but is it good or is it evil? Uh, it's all good, I think, isn't it? Well, <laughs> the reason I'm <laughs> smiling while I'm asking you this is 
you know, that I think that it's great. It's an amazing resource, but it also, you know, and this is coming from him as a chocolate bar addict and they don't, they don't have the Mm -hmm. chocolate bar anymore, but you know, I think it, it was really, it certainly did for him and me, uh, encouraged us to get into this big time numbers chasing thing, Yeah, which I think can, well, not think that that is dangerous. Uh, yes, for that's sure. true. And I, I've certainly suffered, uh, from that at, at times. So next contest, your top six flights count. Mm. And if you're being competitive in that, if the day comes along and you're not going to beat your sixth best flight, why leave the house if you get too focused and wrapped up in the numbers and you really, I certainly went through a phase where I was just focused on the numbers and I kind of forgot about the pleasure of flying. So tell me about that transition. When, when was that? And, uh, and how did you, how, how did you recognize it, change it? At the time I was, um, so this is when I'm flying in the, the French Alps and I was competing in the CFD, the Confederal de Distance, the, the French XC league. And there it's just your top three flights that count. It's basically, there's a few sites in France where it's very easy to fly 200 kilometers or more. And in both X contests and the CFD, at the time, people were just doing the same flight three times, not doing anything new, just up and bang up and down the long ridge, basically. And that is was very saddening to see because you've got these great pilots capable of so much more and they're just out there chasing the numbers. And I saw it happening in myself as well that I was, but I, I, to avoid that, I wanted all my flights to be different at the time. So still got distances, but uh, different triangles, different out and returns. And that's how I kept myself sane, I think. Hmm. You're, you're working pretty full time for Google now there in in Zurich. Not anymore, actually. Oh, really? Yeah. What? Yeah. Ah, this sounds like a story. Let's hear it. What happened? Oh, uh, yeah. Yeah. The um the job was not as described. Uh it sold as software development in a role called SRE. But really the team I was in is very operational and sort of day-to-day um sort of responding if stuff goes wrong, but not a very creative role. I raised this in my manager, and long story short, he's basically exploded. So uh with anger, I then was offered to change teams but uh, forced to sign a PIP in the process, performance improvement plan. And I went to this new team for three months. Uh, things seemed to go very well. But it was my old manager, who was no, I was no longer working with, who got to decide whether the PIP passed or failed. And he decided it failed. Wow. Jeez, yeah. <laughs> holy cow. So what's, what's next then? Oh, it's awesome, actually. So I had a summer off, loads of flying around Europe. And I'm now working at another company uh, just around the corner, 10 minutes walk away. A smaller company, there's much more freedom. You can have much more impact. I'm writing much more code and just much, much happier. Uh, fantastic. Well, that sounds great. Congratulations. And, and, uh, but actually planner, uh, this was, mm-hmm. you know, this is the kind of stuff that you really forget, pardon the term, but you geek out on. You like, you yeah. love making this kind of stuff. For those of you listeners who don't know about XC Planner, this is the tool to use when you're planning your flights. Uh, we just, I just had a talk with Hugh Miller on the last show and, and he was talking about how his own personal flying got so much better when he started realizing that it wasn't just a matter of launching and putting a day together. It's so much in, in advance. It's, it's all the planning in advance. And, and for my own, I can speak to this in my own flying, you know, I, 
my my own personal flights got so much bigger and better and longer when Bruce started using you know XC Planner and also X Contest to you know look at a, at, at a day and say this is what we can do with the day if it goes bad if it goes good if it goes really good you know so we'd have these different plans in mind before we ever stepped off the hill and I, I think that's you know kind of why contests are so good for accelerating uh, progression. But can you talk a little bit about some of that stuff? You know, how I'd like to hear about how you thread your own gift of analysis and technology and, uh, you know, working for things like Google into your own flying, because I found I've talked about this a lot in in previous episodes, but when we were hiking down off uh, the, second waypoint in Ashow, third waypoint in 2015, I was walking down with Stanislav and, and, uh, Michael Vichy and, and I'm, I'm blown away with how many engineers fly. <laughs> it just seems to really attract that kind of mind, which I don't have. <laughs> by the way. Yeah. Well, it's, it's a really technical sport, paragliding. Mm. The amount of gear in understanding a bit about how wings fly, ground speed, airspeed, uh, effect of wing loading, just the sheer amounts of pre-flight checks you've got to do. It's a really, really technical sport. And I think it naturally appeals to uh, those sort of geeky types. Not, not obviously just to those geeky types, but um, it does have special appeal there. And for me, uh, it's very much a passion, both paragliding and computing. So things like XC Planner are a natural outcome uh, from that. Uh, in XC Planner itself, it actually came from a couple of different threads. First one was that I really wanted to fly 100k and at the time I, was, I got into cross-country flying I was doing 30ks 40ks 50ks that sort of thing and it was John Chambers who explained it to me he said the only the difference between a 50k flight and a 100k flight is planning and it's mm-hmm. true if you're if you have an idea of where you're going you're going to make decisions much more faster you're going to try and if you have some sort of goal you're going to try and achieve that goal you can also abandon it if it's you know the conditions aren't good or safety reasons or whatever but just the very fact of having a goal draws you forward this is also something that i think comes from if you get into competition flying uh on an xc flight it's very just free xc flight you can pretty much quit when you want you can you might want to go somewhere but if conditions aren't good you'll turn around and go somewhere else or it's hard to get there because there's a headwind or something like that. You might, you can turn around, but with competition flying, whether it's defined cylinders and defined routes of where you have to go, if you want to score points, it encourages you to try things and really sometimes bang your head against a headwind and still get and get to the turn point. And from that, you learn a whole new load, new skills, your speed increases and you become a better pilot uh, because of it. But things you need to know when you're, you're planning your flight, uh, XE Planner includes the Skyways from a guy called Mickey Van Carnell, which is all the track logs from X Contest and loads of other XC leagues, which you can overlay into the website and you can see exactly where people fly. You can see the auto routes of the sky. Mm-hmm. You can see where people cross valleys or uh, which sites they use, how they get around airspace, all of these things. And so if you start your flight with all that knowledge and that sort of belief that it's possible because you've seen that other people can do it, it's really, it's really empowering. Given all that, 
and your your kind of background and, and analysis and your passion for the X Alps, I'd love to hear. And also, you supported John uh, in yeah. 2011, and then again, I think in kind of a different role in 2013. Is that right? That's right. 2011, I was just um, the weather guy at the end of the phone. Okay. Uh, but in 2013, um, uh, I was co-supporting John with John's dad, which was absolutely fantastic experience. It was. Two weeks, we, we functioned brilliantly as a team. We shared the roles really well, and we had a fantastic result with John uh, coming in fourth and land, landing on the raft in Monaco, which is just a dream come true. I'd like to hear your – that is a dream. That's awesome, and, and, and I loved his book. I'd like to hear your thoughts on what makes that team work because you've, you've – you've watched this race a lot and, mm. and you've seen kind of all the madness and what works and what doesn't. Obviously there's some obvious things, but I bet you've got some unobvious things. Yeah. I mean, it's really hard for the supporters in the X, uh, in X Alps. They're at, they're up longer than the, the athletes. Cause you're generally up half an hour, 45 minutes before um, the day starts to prepare food. You're of course then chasing and supporting during the day and you're, doing all the tidy up stuff once the athlete's gone to bed uh, at 11 p.m., 11.30. So your days are really long and it's a huge amount of work. I have absolutely no idea how Alex Raymond, who supported me in 2009, was able to do it hmm. because it was a full-time job for two of us, uh, with, John and my, uh, with John's dad and myself. I think what really worked uh, partic- uh, with, uh, with this 2013 race was that we all shared a common goal and I actually had a mantra that uh, I would say when, if things were ever stressful or if there's any argument or anything like that, I would say, how can I get John safely and quickly to Monaco? Mm. And that becomes, that's just a, when there's an argument, that's the answer to the, uh, to the question. And you just focus on that. You, uh, one of the questions we asked you was, uh, when, when we came to you for advice, you know, what are the, some of the big things? And you said, you know, have something in plan for conflict resolution. Yeah. And, and, uh, I was, we didn't really have any conflict, but I liked mm-hmm. that we, we talked about that afterwards a lot. And I think what mm-hmm. was so critical for us was one that Ben had been in the army and, mm. and, uh, you know, so he's just, he doesn't take things personally. And, mm. and two, as we just thought, okay, we have to respond to everything with humor <laughs> <laughs> and it, it really worked, but that was, I think that was really good advice. When I heard, you know, when I talked to a lot of the groups after the race, it sounded like conflict was a major player and, and not it, always good. <laughs> it's, it's incredibly stressful. I mean, I had a conflicts in my support in 2009 um and i've seen teams completely split apart uh you know tom O'Connor, i think 2000 or at least once or twice you know his supporter has stormed off and they've uh got oh, a different one in instead terrible and if you want to win the race or even just do well you just can't have that you need to have everyone put uh working together pulling together i've set egos aside yeah what do you what do you see this year with with Kriegel losing Thomas? Uh, he's still Kriegel. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, <laughs> does it change anything? <laughs> I mean, but clearly, I mean, they were a fantastic team and worked exceptionally well together. Um, I, but Kriegel prepares everything in detail. He's not just amazing on the day; he's 
almost a full-time ex-Alps pilot in the preparation as well. So I've no doubt that he will be as good in 2017 as he was in all his previous years that he's won. So I would not underestimate, underestimate him in the slightest. Yeah, no, I don't think so. Yeah. I, 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 I certainly am not, and I hope no one else is either. <laughs> yeah, I think his, um, with his new supporter, they did the ex-Pyrenees last year, and I think Kriegel did it in three or four days. Basically. Yeah, it's like sub three days or something. It was just yeah. incredible. God, yeah. he's so fast. You wanted to talk about SIV. Uh, SIV, yes. Let's talk about SIV. Yeah, uh, it's fantastic. If you haven't done an SIV course, do one. I credit SIV with saving my life. A previous uh, incident, uh, when I was a much less experienced pilot back in 2006, 2007, was flying in um, deep in the Swiss Alps, a place called Sass Fay, on a blue sky day in the winter. And we hit mountain wave, which is really a vicious rotor. And I'm flying in my lightweight kit, you know, no reserve parachute. And I'm over this dry glacier, just full of crevasses. And my wing is spinning and twisted and I have a full twist and, you know, no real options to get out. But because I've done the SIV course, and I think what, this is what you really get most out of an SIV course, is not the mechanisms of the individual maneuvers themselves, but the clarity to understand a little bit of the situation you're in, not panic and fix things. Mm. So because of that SIV course, I could worked out how to steer my wing out of the spiral or spin it was in, uh, despite the twists and come out and then get it down safely to the ground. So or even though I've been flying 20 years or so now, I still do SIV courses regularly. I did one this year, a fantastic one, Toby Columbe, Passion Paragliding in Turkey for a week. I also tried to do a week, uh, weekend with Flyo in Annecy. I it just, just do them. Yeah. What are your what are your goals now with flying? You know, one of the things I've been thinking about quite a bit is, you know, if I'll do the X Alps again this year, you know, health permitting in 2017, and you know, and then then I'll be I'll be 45. Uh, seems kind of ridiculous to keep doing it, you know. So I'm asking myself a lot. What now? Uh, did you go through that? You know, after 2009, or you know, after the ban of the open class, you know, you're still a young, fit guy. What, yeah. What, where do you find your passion drawing you now with flight? Because it's obviously still there. Yeah, yeah. I I hit a real low after um, the open class ban, and I poured a huge amount of energy trying to uh, get them unbanned effectively, and very much burnt out. And I found myself, you know, I'd been I felt for a while I'd done everything in, in paragliding. You know, I'd flown 200k triangles, I'd done X-Alps, I'd done uh, PWCs, I'd been on the British team, European championships. So all my goals had been achieved. And I was I came very, very close to quitting the sport completely. Uh, what's really changed is I've got a good group of friends here uh, in Zurich, where I live, um, who are relatively young pilots flying two to three years uh, or so. And they have a massive passion for flight. And with them, I'm just rediscovering the joy of it. And we have some great adventures. I mean, we've been top landing at mountain huts and staying the night and uh, doing moonlit flights and uh, just simple fly downs and the sun and the sunset after work are just, just absolutely magic. Mm. So it's, it's, I'm very lucky to, to have them to, to, to fly with this group. And so it's through these these young pilots that I've really, really found my passion. 
Ah, wicked. Uh, I like that. So, will you will you still be avidly watching the X Ops this year? (laughs) (laughs) And what about what about John? Um, Why is he no longer doing it? It's a good question, and we have had a long discussions about this. So, John's come forth uh, in the X Alps, and to do better than that, he has a full time job and a family. And his, you know, you don't get to see your wife or your, your, your kids when you're, when you have all that going. Mm. So, and to go further, to take it to the level where you'd get on the podium or first place, you need to have almost Kriegel like levels of amounts of time. You effectively need to be months to prepare. And John just simply, the, the, the risk reward was, was too much. Also not the risk reward that the, uh, the amount of investment of time and energy that it would take to get improve on that result was, uh, was too much, mm. uh, too much compromise for, you know, to see his two daughters, to see his wife, uh, compromise his career. This is, he must miss it. Yeah. I bet. Yeah. yeah I bet. Going through your Twitter feed, uh, <laughs> there was, there seemed to be a, a pretty common theme of safety, uh, mm. Talk to me a bit about, you know, you've had these, you know, couple decades now of, of flying and being enmeshed in, at all levels of it from PwC to just hike and flies and midnight runs and the X Alps. I, I like to bring up just, you know, what you've learned, what's some bad advice out there? What do you see? You know, what are the commonalities that end in uh, tragedy? <laughs> well, having almost had a, been a tragedy myself uh, yeah right so, yeah <laughs> yeah i need a quick moment to think about this the i mean i, I actually i always my goal for every flying day is a very simple one make the right decision as to whether to take off or not hmm. uh it's a very simple thing to say but it is going to be easy to push it and take off into bad conditions, think you'll get away with it, uh, you know, launch into crosswinds or rotor or whatever. It's, so I very much want to make sure I make the right decision to take off. The right decision might be to fly and have a great day flying, or it might be to leave it in the bag and go do something else. In the air, a lot of accidents I've seen have been uh, oh, due to overreactions by the pilot. And I would include my most recent one in this as well. It was often, um, you'd often see the case that someone would get into, um, have a small collapse. Uh, they would then overreact uh, to that, to end up stalling the wing or similar. And basically their efforts to try and fix the wing just mean it stays worse. Mm. Finally, they they give up trying. They let go of the brakes. They reach the reserve handle. And just as the reserve is being thrown away, the wing boom, resumes normal flight. <laughs> the reserve pops out and they drift nicely down. I've seen that several times (laughs) so that's where where things like SIV courses really make a massive massive difference but that's say also the the gear these days is so good you know you can do so much on an ENA or ENB glider the reserve systems generally work well back protection systems are pretty damn good it's we've got better weather forecasting just so much more information yeah I I think safety is pretty good to be honest I liked I like Russ's comment about 
safety. And I said, you know, with, with everything getting better, why isn't the sport getting safer? And he said, it's because, you know, obviously it's, it's just allows us, you know, back in the nineties, you didn't fly in very much wind because you couldn't. Yeah. And uh, now these, these wings are so amazing that they allow us to fly in worse stuff, isn't it? I mean, yeah. you, know, you think about the X-Ops, you're just pounding into terrible conditions the whole time. Yeah. Because <laughs> yeah. you've got I mean, wings that, that, that you can do of, it on. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. There's a lot of external pressure, internal and external pressure to, to fly in those conditions, of course. Sure. Yeah, sure. Yeah, yeah you're, you're, you're right on the edge yeah. the whole yeah. time. Yeah. yeah. This, the risk homeostasis uh, theory is a good one. That basically, you know, if you put, give a cyclist a, a cycling helmet and they'll just cycle faster to compensate. And I think the same, the, one of the reasons that the open class ban did not improve safety in any way, in fact, all the data I've seen indicates that safety got worse after the open class ban, is there are a lot of people who would never fly an open class wing, but would buy an END wing, even though it, it's in practical purposes, just as difficult uh, to fly. So people stepped up too far and had accidents. Hmm. Have you ever had an accident? Have I? Yeah. I've had several accidents, yeah. Hmm. I've landed in trees four, five times at this, yeah. <laughs> um. <laughs> is, there, is, there, is there a good story embedded in any of the tree landings or, or, oh. or otherwise? <laughs> <laughs> well, the, probably the most public one is actually just before the 2009 X-Alps. I had this uh, responsive wing that I'd asked for lightweight risers. And they, I took off from, we were doing a, some photo shoot just before the race. You know, you've been through this. Yeah. So, you know, a few days before the race, all the athletes are in um, Fushalam Zay, by, just by Red Bull headquarters. And you go out and you do shoots with the uh, photographers. There's all the race briefings and whatnot. So we're up on the Geisberg on the north launch, which is a very short, narrow uh, launch. I popped up my wing, looked fine. I took off and flew. And what had happened is on these risers, Basically, uh, one of the myons had slid down and it pulled on 10 centimeters of C uh, riser on the left-hand side. Mm. And this meant the left side of the glider was basically not flying. I try, And because you're now at a steep launch, you're immediately over trees, there's no way I could immediately land. And so I had to try and keep it flying with a lot of uh, weight shift and a tiny bit of break on the opposite side. I tried to pilot it down to the landing field, but lost control it went into flat very flat spin and i go straight into the trees and i the trees there they look like normal trees from the top but really it's a little conifer on top of a uh, 20 meter trunk with no branches whatsoever i was very lucky that i was sort of tangled in one tree and the wing had gone over the tree next to me and obviously just air beneath me i phoned up the race organization said i've landed in a tree and i Untangled, I undid my speed bar from the harness so I could actually tie myself to the tree of the floor. And, and the, the, yeah, and waited. I recorded a little video and waited, rescue. And the rescue came up and they climbed up the tree. Um, I belay him across to the other tree so we can get the wing out. This is two days before the race. We had to cut every single line from oh, glide God. To, to get it out. He then lowered me down, lowered me down. Luckily, I had bought a complete set of spare lines for the glider. And I spent a Saturday morning before the race inside the sports hall in Fushal, 
pouring rain outside, relining the plate glider. And that was the days of four liners, not two liners. So it took quite a long time. Mm. And the first time I could actually inflate the glider was on the takeoff of the Geisberg itself with the race start with. Oh, uh, I was very, very happy when it came up. (laughs) Oh, my (laughs) God. Still straight. Do you so, did did all that? Do you think that materially affected how the race went for you, or once you flew it that first time, it was all good and you know it was behind no. you? That would be. Yeah, I no, mean, I, those first that week before the race is really stressful. Absolutely, absolutely. I mean, I I was I think joint fifteenth in um, when I did it in two thousand and nine, and I definitely feel I I could have done better, but my at the time my, my headspace wasn't very good i'd um had a number of setbacks in the uh, in the preparation and i was certainly not flying confidently and the x alps really we've talked a little bit about the physical training to do but the mental side is by far the most important uh, part of it mm, yeah absolutely see, i mean kriegel's obviously got a fantastic mental attitude uh, take another guy uh is it muller um who almost won in 2007 it's amazing. He can just fly with belief in tough conditions. John is also really very good at this. And one of the reasons I was very happy to see John Chambers compete is that he's really good at keeping his calm and managing risky situations well. Mm. And my, I just was not in that headspace at all. I tend to take the easy option of hiking, which is slow but steady and horribly painful and boring to watch. <laughs> 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 yeah ouch ouch okay well given given the four or five i think you said tree landings and some accidents yeah. along the way you know looking back at things again with 2020 hindsight are there was there any advice along the way or advice you either got and didn't follow or wish you would have gotten when you look back to the, you know, when you were learning in the nineties or maybe just getting into XC in 2003, when you moved to Annecy or if mm. there've been some aha moments, that's a couple of different questions. Sorry. Yeah. But yeah, I, mean, first, I think it's very important to remember it's your responsibility all the time. And the pilot is by far the most important factor. If, if you find yourself blaming your gear uh, or somebody else for your accidents, when, apart from someone flying straight into you, but you have to take responsibility yourself for everything. By all means, listen to other people and take their stuff into account, but ultimately you're responsible. What was very helpful for me was to, be, uh, was to have more experienced pilots around to mentor me uh, and, and learn from them. Uh, and that definitely... I don't know how to say if it's kept me out of trouble, but certainly being able to sit down, talk through things, make plans for the day, fly together, and at the end of the day, analyze the day and learn from everybody's experience. That's very, very helpful indeed. Mm. I had I mentioned the mantra earlier of um, what I use in the Excels, but I similarly have some mantras that I say when I'm, I'm flying. Uh, if I'm stressed, as said, a lot of accidents are overreactions, I tell myself, loose hands, my focus on relaxing my hands. You relax, loosen your hands, your shoulders relax, and you're just less likely to give the extreme inputs that lead to cascades. If I'm stuck somewhere low down, um, I ask myself, who is going up? If you get stuck on a XC flight or in a competition, it's very easy to end up just on a little ridge. You can stay up, but you're not going anywhere. And by 
when I, I say who's going up, I force myself to look over a much wider area looking for any all your your classic thermal signs, other gliders, just be much more open to trying to see what all your options are. Mm, I like that. And sometimes it also happens you get bored or things don't go so well for whatever reason. And there I tell myself, I choose to be here. This is, you, know, you might be stuck soaring that little shady hill, bored out of your skull waiting for sunshine to come out. But really every part of a flight is a unique experience and you'll only be in that position once that's here and now. So seize that opportunity and make the most of it. I love it. I love it. On that note, I think that is, uh, there's a terrific amount of information packed into there and, uh, I think we'll leave it there. That was, uh, terrific. Thanks so much, Tom. I, I, uh, it's always a treat and an honor to, to talk to you and I'm sure, uh, my team will come in and bug you in the spring again and <laughs> find out what other treasures you've got hidden away in that mind of yours. Is there anything else you want to uh, talk about before we sign off? I uh, just say thanks so much, Kevin. It's been a pleasure. I'm really looking forward to watching you in the uh, X Alps. And I'd love to quiz you about that. Fantastic. Fantastic. Well, yeah, I'll be over. We've got the van all rented out. It's all ready to go. Uh, I'll be over there June 1st. I'm coming over a little bit later this this year than I did last time. I found last time was just too much, but uh, yeah, we'll, we'll be seeing you soon. Cheers, mate. All right. Thanks, Tom. Cheers. I hope you enjoyed that. A lot of great advice there from a really amazing pilot and a guy that thinks about our sport in uh, pretty unique ways. Advice that we should all be following. As always, all we ask for is buck a show. Uh, this is a listener-supported podcast. You can find ways to contribute, if you will, uh, on cloudbasedmayhem.com. And like I said at the top of the show, we've got this new way to contribute where you can kind of set it and forget it through patreon.com. Really cool. If you want to go check that out, it's patreon.com forward slash cloudbasedmayhem. Uh, you'll find about three minutes of really cool clips also from the Alaska Project, North of Known, that Dave Turner and I did this spring. Thank you so much, and we'll see you on the next one. Cheers.